Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, news from strange places, house hunting in Dubai. Now about that Afghan president on the run, Ashraf Ghani, dubbed President Moneybags, who is accused of fleeing the country with 169 million U.S. dollars stuffed in suitcases following the Taliban takeover He's reportedly in search of sumptuous new real estate in Dubai. Apparently, this is nothing new when it comes to former U.S. puppet government-installed regimes around the world. Case in point, South Vietnam President Thieu, back in 1975, left his defeated government a billionaire, packing 26 tons of gold. RT reporter and contributor to this show, Caleb Maupin breaks it all down. While two decades of occupation has brought nothing but misery to most Afghans, there's a layer that have collaborated with the United States who have done pretty well, to put it mildly. Two congressmen want an investigation of Ashraf Ghani, the president who just fled. Apparently, he took $169 million with him. He's now got asylum in the United Arab Emirates, a country known for its, shall we say, hospitality. It's too easy for officials to buy property in Dubai anonymously. There is no information available to help identify violations. More transparency is needed. Afghanistan's former vice president, Ahmed Zia Massoud, allegedly flew to Dubai in 2009 with over $52 million in cash. He was eventually released without having to explain where the money came from. Many former Afghan officials have luxurious real estate in Dubai. The cost of an average apartment in Dubai is over $670,000. Meanwhile, the gross domestic product per person per year in Afghanistan for 2020 was less than 600. Afghan corruption has been going on for decades and did not start with America. But rather than trying to fix this eye-watering graft, the United States poured gasoline on the fire. Our biggest single project, sadly and inadvertently, of course, may have been the development of mass corruption. Once it gets to the level I saw when I was out there, it's somewhere between unbelievably hard and outright impossible to fix it. This is nothing new for US-aligned regimes. The US-backed Saigon government in South Vietnam was notorious for corruption, and that probably contributed to the overall victory of the communists. Nye said he was convinced that Mr. Tiu had succeeded in removing from the country a substantial portion of South Vietnam's estimated total of 26 tonnes of gold reserves. Former aide says Tiu, profiting by control of corrupt regime, left Vietnam a billionaire. Now Saigon and Kabul have fallen, but the USA still has its buddies around the world. Take the Karzani family that rules Iraqi Kurdistan. The family spent $50 million on Beverly Hills mansions alone. The prime minister of Iraqi Kurdistan, a member of the Karzani family, actually spent over $3 million in a Qatar casino in a single night. Now keep in mind that since 2014, the United States has sent over $3 billion in humanitarian aid. Looks like American taxpayers have been subsidizing lives of luxury for White House cronies across the planet. While the infrastructure of the United States is decaying and falling apart, in some cases literally, and the U.S. economy creaks, we now have a situation where the government is handing out cash all over the world to notoriously corrupt people. I think the investigations regarding corruption in Afghanistan and the American involvement in it uh, should have started uh, uh, in 2002, when the Americans invaded and occupied Afghanistan because um, they brought, in a way, corruption with them. Very ordinary people have become enormously rich. The previous uh, warlords who were just commanders, maybe, or strongmen, uh, are now multimillionaires. Only 2% of the aid gets to the target population. Most of the other money leaves Afghanistan either through con contracts by Americans and foreigners or through simple theft, uh, corruption, and kleptocracy. And coming up next on Arts Express... Hang on. 
Hi. Hi. Who are you? <clears throat> Police. Did something happen? Oh, no, no, no. Luckily, nothing has, has happened as of yet. I understand that you're fond of shopping at Carlson's supermarket. Why, did something happen at Carlson's? No. Uh, however, we'd like to uh, prevent things from happening to uh, businesses in the vicinity like Carlson's supermarket. Yeah, may, may, may I uh, come in? I'd like to see a police badge. Well, so would I. Unfortunately, that today is going to be a bit of a problem. Now, <clears throat> I can tell by your expression that you think it's a bad thing that I don't have my police badge on me. Right. Well, I'm here to tell you that it's a, it's a good thing for the police department. And I'm not going to lie to you, okay? It also happens to be a good thing for me on a personal level. Yeah. You see my, my badge? It's um, at the silversmith. Yeah, it's at the, the silversmith there. They're shining it up and um, adding a few additional citations to it. I've been promoted. Okay. Right. So now you're, now, now what are you? Like what's your, what's your rank now? We're not at liberty to discuss that. Uh, that's considered classified information. However, I think this is safe to say that it, it's a considerable leap up the ladder. Uh, <clears throat> now, may I? No, not without a badge. Bravo, bravo. And those were scenes from Danish director Lars Van Trier's 2018 The House That Jack Built in which Matt Dillon's stalker stranger with exceedingly deranged motives sets his sight on a random woman played by Siobhan Fallon Hogan who's not having it, or maybe not. And Hogan is our guest today on Arts Express to talk about another tough woman she plays in a kind of housewife action hero drama in Rushed. She also wrote and directed Rushed as a mother fiercely protective over her house full of children who takes matters into her own hands after her son is killed in a college fraternity hazing and the authorities do nothing about it. Hogan will also talk about some of her work in her vast number of productions, including as well Lars Van Trier's Dancer in the Dark and Dogville, along with Saturday Night Live, The Golden Girls, and Forrest Gump. Here's Siobhan Fallon Hogan, but first, a scene from Forrest Gump, in which Hogan is the local school bus driver, a role she fought for that would have presumably been for a man instead. Said Hogan, director Bob Semeckis called me for a much smaller part, and I said, listen, Bob, I rode a bus my entire life. I remember the bus ride on the first day of school very well. Are you coming along? Promising not to be taking rides from strangers. This is the bus to the school. I'm Forrest, Forrest Gump. I'm Dorothy Harris. Well, now we ain't strangers anymore. What led you to embark on Rushed as writer-producer and the star, and your inspiration politically and personally? I had written several one-woman shows, and I thought, you know what? I've been in movies long enough to write a film. And I have three kids. One's 26 now, the other one's 23, the other one's 19. And I think that every parent at a certain stage lays in bed at night thinking the worst. And when kids go off to college, you lose a lot of control. And if you're really sensitive, like me, you're in the fetal position a lot of times, worrying, worrying, worrying. So basically, I wrote the film because I feel compassion for people who worry themselves to death worrying about their kids. Now, we rarely see mothers as action heroes on screen, 
with mothers more often caricatures or villains. So what do you feel you're bringing to a mother's portrayal in movies that's new and different and refreshing? Well, my character in this film is an Irish Catholic mom who swears and then her face off while she's praying. (laughs) So she'll be making sandwiches in the morning, praying the rosary, and then be like, F, kids, get up. So it's literally the real deal. It's what a mom does that I know, people that I know. You know, it's like you're doing your best to balance. In the movie, I have four kids. You're doing the best to balance your life, but you're not perfect. But when push comes to shove and someone harms your kid or goes after them, you are there 100% and you try to do the right thing. But in this case, and I think with my temperament, if the right thing can't be done through the proper channels, you have to take the law into your own hands and go all guns a-blazing. What do you feel it is specifically about male culture in this country as opposed to females? We don't see these terrible occurrences in sororities. Honestly, I think that I, I, I think that mothers worry about their children, boy or girl. I think that there's bad in every institution. I think that when someone is bad, it's up to the others to say, hey, this girl or this guy is a bad guy, and we're not going to follow him. And I think that when something bad happens, people need to stand up and do the right thing. I think there's bad things that happen in any club or any institution. I think people need to dig down deep and be good people. Listen, when there's a bad apple in there, people got to stand up and be tough and don't follow the leader because they're older or stronger or cooler than you. What sort of research went into creating this story, and have you had reactions from mothers whose sons have been victims? I honestly got advice from someone, what was my first film, and they said, just start writing. You know, obviously I'd read read a lot of articles and seen a lot on TV, and um, I basically just went for my own imagination on what would happen, what would it be like if I was in that situation? And... Yeah. And I have had, I've had people reach out to me and say, thank you. I hope this, you know, kids will see this and they will realize, you know, to do the right thing. I mean, it's a thriller too. So, you know, it's fictional, but the mom, she might not be someone that people want to emulate either. You know what I mean? (laughs) And I wanted to ask, what are your memories of being part of those classics, Forrest Gump? And the Golden Girls. I have nothing but fabulous memories, and I have nothing but gratitude. Forrest Gump, I met Mary Ellen Zemeckis, who was Bob Zemeckis' wife at the time, the director. We did Greedy together. It was my very first movie. She and I became best friends. We called each other Shadow because I used to follow her everywhere because I didn't know what I was doing. I'd done a lot of stage. I'd never done a film. And I was in Greedy with Michael J. Fox and Kirk Douglas, and Phil Hartman played my husband. And so we, we just hit it off. You know, like when you just meet someone in life and you're like, you felt like you've known him for 100 years. And Bob Zemeckis was, direct, was going to be directing Forrest Gump. And he called me in for a much smaller part. And I said, listen, Bob, I, drove, I rode a bus my entire life. I am a bus person. I'm a hick from upstate New York. And so he said, go ahead and audition. And that's how I got that part. The Golden Girls, it's funny that you bring them both up because Forrest Gump was my second movie and The Golden Girls was my very first TV show. And my good friend, David Goodman, who's now the head of the Writers Guild of America, lived behind me in California. I lived in California for all of two years. And we became fast friends. And he got on the Golden Girls as a writer. He was a young writer. He's like, Siobhan, I think you'd be right to play Betty White's um, secretary. So here I get on this show. And when you're on a show like that, and, you know, these people at the top of their game. And, you know, in those days, it was ABC, NBC, CBS. I don't think Fox had even started. And so these people are cream of the crop. So the director basically can only direct the guest star other than, you know, to to flatter and tell the others you're doing great. So long and the short of it, by Friday night, you know, when when you film, I took a picture of myself and cut it out because they were on the cover of TV Guide, which was, you know, the TV Bible at that point. And I put myself in with the three of them and gave them each (laughs) a card (laughs) like I was part of the team. And they were so nice. Betty White was the most, one of the most fabulous people I've ever met in my life. 
just a gem. And what about being part of Saturday Night Live? What was that experience like for you? I mean, I am so grateful to Saturday Night Live. It opened up so many doors for me. You know, any film would have me come in to audition or even offer parts. And Chris Farley and I became great friends. I treasure that. My friend Erin Frazier, who is now one of the producers on my film, Rushed, I met her then. Um, You know, I still keep in touch with Adam Sandler and um, Alan Cleghorn. These were, you know, we were kids. And, we, you know, it was unbelievable. I mean, Bruce Springsteen, who I live in the same town, he played. My, I met my husband then. He used to, used to be able to have as many people come to our dressing rooms as possible, which my husband took a complete advantage of and had his, like, entire rugby team. They put beer and ice in my sink. I was like, excuse me, I, I have to do a show? But anyway, um, you know, it was, it was a, every comedian, I, was, I did, never did stand-up, dream. And I, I got to achieve my dream. It was hard. I mean, I was not a stand-up, so that's a different temperament. But it was harder than heck, but I, I treasure it, and I'm grateful for it. And Lorne Michaels did great by me. He put me in Baby Mama after the movie with, you know, Tina Fey, and, and, um, and I was so lucky to be in that. And I, I just, I'm grateful. I mean, I'm really lucky. And what about the Danish participation in your production, director Lars Van Trier's company, and your director is also Danish. And, and editor, Sabine and Emiliani, um, and Aaron Fraser, producer. Okay, so I've done three films with Lars von Trier over the years. I did Dancer in the Dark with Bjork, which won the Palme d'Or. I did Dogville with Nicole Kidman, Lauren Bacall, Ben Gazzara, Paul Bettany, Jelko Ivanic, great, great cast. I did the house, the house that Jack built with Matt Dillon. Lars von Trier is a friend, and he's a, a genius. And he, when I wrote the film, I sent it to them immediately. And two days later, they got back and they said, we love this film. We'd like to co-produce it with you. And then they said, there's, do you have a director yet? And I said, no. And they said, there's a great director, Vibeka Musaya. And Vibeka and I had actually met seven years before through Lars's other producer who I've known forever, Vibeka Vindelov, who produced all the films I was in, two Vibekas. It's like Mary in the United States or Kate or something. So Vibeka uh, Musaya directed, and Sabina Miliani had edited a film that I did with uh, that Wayne Roberts wrote with Johnny Depp called The Professor. So I basically just called in everybody I loved over the years, and they all stepped up to the plate. So would you say there's a Scandinavian flavor to your film, and with women as the director and screenwriter as well? Well, absolutely. Danish people are the best, and they are blunt. And they don't mince words. And when you're doing a film in 24 days, you got to get it done and you got to get it done right. And Vivica's a genius. And she's not just a genius, but she's an artist. So she would get it done and she'd get it done right. And she'd be like, listen, you Americans, like, I cannot take time to BS you. This is what we have to do. And she did an incredible job. And what can you say about the next film you're working on and writing and starring in as well, Shelter and Solitude? What is it all about, and what are you up to in the film? So Shelter and Solitude, we start shooting September 27th. Must be a lucky number for me. Robert Patrick from The Terminator, who plays my husband in Rushed, who's fabulous and should get an Academy Award for this film, Rushed, he will be playing my brother, the warden of a prison in Shelter and Solitude. And I will be a prison guard by default because of COVID. I'm actually a wannabe country singer. So it's got a real country western theme. It's a prison story. And Dan Castellaneta from, you know, Homer Simpson is in it. Um, and we have a fabulous cast. And it's a, it's a real country western prison love story with a beautiful message about death row. Well, thank you so much, Siobhan, for calling in. Very, thank you very much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And Rushed is out now in release. And next up on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. More and more today's world is looking Kafka-esque, so I thought this week we'd go back to the original. Franz Kafka was born in Prague in 1883, 
Shy as a boy with a domineering father, he wrote some of the most compelling stories ever of human alienation and dislocation. His lifelong friend Max Broad felt that two of Kafka's most distinguishing traits were absolute truthfulness and precise conscientiousness. A diary entry of Kafka's makes it clear why he felt he had to write, quote, the tremendous world I have inside my head, but how to free myself and free it without being torn to pieces, and a thousand times rather be torn to pieces than retain it in me or bury it. That indeed is why I am here. That is clear to me. The short story I'll be reading today by Kafka, a hunger artist, was published in final form in 1924. Kafka tells a story that almost any artist today can identify with. Kafka edited the story on his deathbed as he lay dying from tuberculosis at the age of 40. And now our radio version adapted and performed by myself of Franz Kafka's A Hunger Artist. A Hunger Artist In the last decades, interest in hunger artists has declined considerably, whereas in earlier days there was good money to be earned putting on major productions of this sort under one's own management. Nowadays that is totally impossible. Those were different times. Back then, the hunger artist captured the attention of the entire city. From day to day, while the fasting lasted, participation increased. Everyone wanted to see the hunger artist at least once a day. On fine days, the cage was dragged out into the open air, and then the hunger artist was put on display, particularly for the children. The children looked on amazed, their mouths open, holding each other's hands for safety as he sat there on scattered straw spurning the chair in black tights, looking pale, with his ribs sticking out prominently, sometimes nodding politely, answering questions with a forced smile, even sticking his arms out through the bars to let people feel how emaciated he was, but then completely sinking back into himself so that he paid no attention to anything but merely looked out in front of him with his eyes almost shut and now and then sipping from a tiny glass of water to moisten his lips. Apart from the changing groups of spectators, there were also constant observers chosen by the public, who were given the task of observing the hunger artist day and night so that he didn't get something to eat in some secret manner. It was, however, merely a formality introduced to reassure the masses, for those who understood knew well enough that during the period of fasting, the hunger artists would never, under any circumstances, have eaten the slightest thing, not even if compelled by force. The honor of his art forbade it. Nothing was more excruciating to the hunger artist than such watchers. They depressed him. They made his fasting terribly difficult. The empresario had set the maximum length of time for the fast at 40 days. He would never allow the fasting go on beyond that point, not even in the cosmopolitan cities. And in fact, he had a good reason. Experience had shown that for about 40 days one could increasingly whip up a city's interest by gradually increasing advertising, but that then the public turned away. So then on the fortieth day the door of the cage, which was covered with flowers, was opened. An enthusiastic audience filled the amphitheater. A military band played. Two doctors entered the cage in order to take the necessary measurements of the hunger artist. The results were announced to the auditorium through a megaphone. And finally, Two young ladies arrived and sought to lead the hunger artist down a couple of steps out of the cage, where on a small table a carefully chosen hospital meal was laid out. And at this moment the hunger artist always fought back, 
Why stop right now after 40 days? He could have kept going for even longer for an unlimited length of time. Why did people want to rob him of the fame of fasting longer? Not just so that he could become the greatest hunger artist of all time, which, in fact, he probably was already, but also so that he could surpass himself in some unimaginable way, for he felt that there were no limits to his capacity for fasting. If he kept going and kept fasting even longer, why would they not tolerate it? Then, too, he was tired and felt good sitting in the straw. Now he was supposed to stand up straight and tall and go to eat something which, when he merely imagined it, made him feel nauseous right away. With great difficulty, he repressed mentioning this only out of consideration for the women. But then what happened, what always happened, the impresario came forward without a word, the music made talking impossible, raised his arms over the hunger artist as if inviting heaven to look upon its work here on the straw. This unfortunate martyr, something the hunger artist certainly was, only in a completely different sense, grabbed the hunger artist around his thin waist, in the process wanting, with his exaggerated caution, to make believe that here he had to deal with something fragile, and handed him over, not without secretly shaking him a little so that the hunger artist's legs and upper body swung back and forth uncontrollably, to the women who had in the meantime turned as pale as death. At this point, the hunger artist endured everything. His head lay on his chest. It was as if it had inexplicably rolled around and just stopped there. His body was arched back. His legs scraped the ground, as if they were not really on the floor, but were looking for the real ground. And the entire weight of his body, admittedly very small, lay against one of the women who appealed for help with flustered breath. When she couldn't manage this and her more fortunate companion didn't come to her assistance, but trembled and remained content to hold in front of her the hunger artist's hand, that small bundle of knuckles. She broke into tears to the delighted laughter of the auditorium and had to be relieved by an attendant who had been standing ready for some time. He lived this way, taking regular small breaks. But how was he to find consolation? What was there left for him to wish for? And if a good-natured man who felt sorry for him ever wanted to explain to him that his sadness probably came from his fasting, then it could happen that the hunger artist responded with an outburst of rage and began to shake the cage like an animal, frightening everyone. But the impresario had a way of punishing moments like this, something he was happy to use. He would make an apology for the hunger artist to the assembled public, conceding that the irritability had been provoked only by his fasting, which well-fed people did not readily understand, and which was capable of excusing the behavior of the hunger artist. From there, he would move on to speak about the equally hard-to-understand claim of the hunger artist that he could go on fasting for much longer than he was doing. He would praise the lofty striving, the goodwill, and the great self-denial no doubt contained in this claim, but then would try to contradict it simply by producing photographs, which were also on sale. For in the pictures one could see the hunger artist on the fortieth day of his fast, in bed, almost dead from exhaustion. Although the hunger artist was very familiar with this perversion of the truth, it was impossible to fight against the world of misunderstanding. At any rate, one day the pampered hunger artist saw himself abandoned by the crowd of pleasure-seekers who preferred to stream to other attractions. 
The impresario chased around half of Europe one more time with him to see whether he could still rediscover the old interest here and there. It was all futile. It was as if a secret agreement against the fasting performance had really developed everywhere. Of course, it was certain that the popularity of fasting would return once more someday, but for those now alive that was no consolation. What was the hunger artist to do now? So he said farewell to the impresario, an incomparable companion on his life's road, and let himself be hired by a large circus. In order to spare his own feelings, he didn't even look at the terms of his contract at all. A large circus, with its huge number of men, animals, and gimmicks, which are constantly being let go and replenished, can use anyone at any time, even a hunger artist, provided, of course, his demands are modest. The hunger artist declared that he could fast just as well as in earlier times. Indeed, he even affirmed that if people would let him do what he wanted, he would really now legitimately amaze the world for the first time, an assertion which, however, given the mood of the time, only brought smiles from the experts. However, basically, the hunger artist had also not forgotten his sense of the way things really were, and he took it as self-evident that people would not set him and his cage up as some star attraction in the middle of the arena, but would move him outside in some other readily accessible spot near the animal stalls. Huge, brightly painted signs surrounded the cage and announced what there was to look at there, during the intervals in the main performance when the general public pushed out towards the menagerie in order to see the animals, they could hardly avoid moving past the hunger artist and stopping there a moment. He had looked forward with delight to the crowd pouring around him until he became convinced only too quickly that most of these people were time and again without exception only visiting the menagerie and when they had come right up to him. He immediately got an earful from the shouting and cursing of the two steadily increasing groups, the one who wanted to take their time looking at the hunger artist, not with any understanding, but on a whim or from mere defiance, and a second group of people whose only demand was to go straight to the animal stalls. And it was an all-too-rare stroke of luck when the father of the family came by with his children, pointed his finger at the hunger artist, gave a detailed explanation about what was going on here, and talked of earlier years when he had been present at similar but incomparably more magnificent performances. And then the children, because they had been inadequately prepared at school and in life, always stood around still uncomprehendingly. What was fasting to them? Perhaps the hunger artist said to himself sometimes everything would be a little better if his location were not quite so near the animal stalls. That way it would be easy for people to make their choice, to say nothing of the fact that he was very upset and constantly depressed by the stink from the stalls, the animal's commotion at night, the pieces of raw meat dragged past him for the carnivorous beasts and the roars at feeding time. But he did not dare to approach the administration about it. In any case, who knew where they would hide him if he wished to remind them of his existence? And along with that of the fact that, strictly speaking, he was only an obstacle on the way to the menagerie. A small obstacle at any rate, a constantly diminishing obstacle. People went straight past him. Try to explain the art of fasting to anyone. If someone doesn't feel it, then he cannot be made to understand it. The beautiful signs became dirty and illegible. People tore them down, and no one thought of replacing them. The small table with the number of days the fasting had lasted, which early on had been carefully renewed every day, 
remained unchanged for a long time, for after the first few weeks the staff grew tired of even this small task. And so the hunger artist kept fasting on and on as he once had dreamed about in earlier times, but no one was counting the days. No one, not even the hunger artist himself, knew how great his achievement was by this point. And his heart grew heavy. Many days went by once more, and this too came to an end. Finally, the cage caught the attention of a supervisor, and he asked the attendant why they had left this perfectly useful cage standing here unused with rotting straw inside. Nobody knew until one man, with the help of the table with the number on it, remembered the hunger artist. They pushed the straw around with poles and found the hunger artist in there. Are you still fasting? the supervisor asked. When are you finally going to stop? Forgive me everything, whispered the hunger artist. Only the supervisor, who was pressing his ear up against the cage, understood him. Certainly, said the supervisor, tapping his forehead with his finger in order to indicate to the staff the state the hunger artist was in. We forgive you. I always wanted you to admire my fasting. But we do admire it, said the supervisor obligingly. But you shouldn't admire it. Well, well then we don't admire it, said the supervisor. But why shouldn't we admire it? Because I had to fast. I can't do anything else. Oh, just look at you, said the supervisor. Why can't you do anything else? Because, said the hunger artist, lifting his head a little and with his lips pursed as if for a kiss, speaking right into the supervisor's ear so that he wouldn't miss anything. Because I couldn't find a food which tasted good to me. If I had found that, believe me, I would not have made a spectacle of myself and would have eaten to my heart's content like you and everyone else. Those were his last words. But in his failing eyes there was still the firm, if no longer proud, conviction that he was continuing to fast. All right, tidy this up now, said the supervisor. And they buried the hunger artist along with the straw. But in his cage they put a young panther. Even for a person with the dullest mind, it was clearly refreshing to see this wild animal prowling around in this cage which had been dreary for such a long time. It lacked nothing. Without thinking about it for any length of time, the guards brought the animal food whose taste it enjoyed. It never seemed once to miss its freedom. This noble body, equipped with everything necessary, almost to the point of bursting, even appeared to carry freedom around with it, that seemed to be located somewhere or other in its teeth, and its joy in living came with such strong passion from its throat that it was not easy for spectators to keep watching. But they controlled themselves, kept pressing around the cage, and had no desire at all to move on. You've been listening to A Hunger Artist by Franz Kafka, adapted and performed by myself, Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And the music you were listening to is from Chopin, 
Opus 9, performed by Brigitte Angerer. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the global television beat. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro attended the Series Mania TV Festival in Lille, France, and is back with a report on what that big business movie industrial complex will be up to this fall, both up on the screen and behind the scenes including, quote, the U.S. cable channels about to expand into Europe, the territory they can't wait to pillage, while at the same time twisting the notion of the word curated in a corruption of national tastes as the terminology moves out of museums and as Monet and Modigliani give way to sponge pants Bob. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, series, series everywhere with no audience spared. What's new in fall streaming? If not the largest, it certainly is Hage Levy, the showrunner of HBO's lead fall series, Scenes from a Marriage, and festival jury president termed it the most important television festival in the world. This year's edition of Series Mania at Lille in northern France previewed 70 series from 22 countries with 44 new entries, as well as three days of talk about the business of global streaming. The most dominant trend in new series is that in the best of them, Germinal from France, The Unusual Suspects from Australia, and The Last Socialist Artifact from Croatia, a new post-the-white lotus critique of the rich and post-the-COVID more unequal distribution of wealth, with tech billionaires growing by leaps and bounds while millions are about to be thrown out of their homes, rich against poor, and an acknowledgement of this inequality. Or, on the other hand, in the U.S. series The Bite and On the Verge, an utter ignoring of these disparities, continuing to pretend they don't exist, or a Hollywoodization of the differences in hacks, or a deflecting of group anti-corporate sentiments individualized domestic problems, the French series The Code. The mood in the three days of consideration of this streaming and on-the-air television business was relentlessly positive, and why not? The American streamers are flush with money, though much of it borrowed, as the Disney Plus rep began his talk by displaying the figure of 116 million subscribers as of August of this year. And with the U.S. cable channels, stars, CBS Viacom, and HBO Max all about to expand into Europe, a territory they can't wait to pillage. The European mood was, despite the edict, much more cautious on how to take advantage of, counter, and contend with this onslaught. There is little talk about Asia. Have the streamers conceded this territory to China? Though a report by the French State Film and Television Association, the CNC, revealed that over the last year, China was the leading commissioner of series, beating the U.S. by 653 to 611, with France, Britain, and Turkey far behind. Yet another area of digital competition in which the Chinese are the new world leaders. One presenter conceded that the three most important makers of television series are, in order, the U.S., Asia, and European publicly financed television. Though the Chinese outproduced the U.S., it has the lead because of the dominance of English, with 903 series in that language, and Mandarin a distant second with 656. Netflix has not only capitalized on this difference in terms of global subscribers, but also has taken the lead in terms of dubbing, not only global series into English, but also now dubbing in 34 languages and subtitling in 37 of the 190 countries in which it now has subscribers. The U.S. streamer's global capacity has forced changes in the European media ecosystem, prompting a new wave of consolidation, like the coming merger of France's two leading independent TV channels, TF1 and M6, and much more cooperation between public and private national entities and between nations. Germinal, with a budget of 2 million euros for each of its Euro-standard six episodes, voted the most popular series of the festival, is a combination of the French production company Banaget, French public television, Italian public television Rai, and the new French streaming service Salto. These combinations are now necessary to produce competitive series since the American streamers, led by HBO Now, 
which is now folded into HBO Max, with series such as Game of Thrones and Westworld, have pushed budgets to $5 million per episode, what used to be the outlay for a studio or Emmer indie film, as a way of drowning their rivals in high-priced production values. Cross-country financing is now also de rigueur, with, as one speaker put it, even the days of BBC, ITV, and Channel 4 combined financing barely being enough to compete with the new budget requirements. The expansion plans of the U.S. streamers for Europe often betray the one-sidedness of the transaction. Netflix is beginning production in Russia with its contemporary version of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, Anna K. And the Netflix rep expressed surprise that the country has the technicians, the studios, and the landscapes to produce the series. Amazed at discovering that Russia, land of Eisenstein, Sokorov, and Kochalovsky, actually has a long and celebrated cinematic history. Russian television also is alive and well, and one of the surprise hits of the festival was Vampires of the Midland, about a vampire family with a feisty grandpa who harkened back fondly to the Stalinist fifties, and by his young, bumbling, tech-savvy charge in a smart update of Anne Rice's interview with the vampire, which collapsed Russian history, including the defeat of Napoleon, into bite-sized, pun intended, chunks. The series, though, has a warmth and comradeship to it, sometimes expressed in cynical Russian humor, with the vampire family committed to not killing humans that was missing from Rice's simply decadent storytelling. As the Russians move into straight genre productions, here and in the action flick Major Grom, Plague Doctor, they produce them with a liveliness and good-natured humor missing from the more intense pursuit of novelty in American genre production. In terms of producing, as they enter the European market, Disney Plus had the most to offer, citing series which stressed marginal populations like the Turkish women who take over the Patriarch's restaurant in Berlin in Sultan City, and Ozakin, a series about the actual murder of an Algerian boy by a French cop. The executive John Copen's situating of Disney as having a long history of Euro productions in its animations of Victor Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame, of Hans Christian Andersen's Cinderella, and the Italian author Carlo Collodi's Pinocchio, Failed to mention that in each case, the Disney version had mutilated the class consciousness or societal horror of the originals and turned them into toothless family fare. Much more openly exploitational was Pluto, the Euro channel for CBS Viacom, now rebranded Paramount+, Plus, which will feature little European content, though it is obliged by law to produce 30% native content. Instead, the streamer emphasized how it was helping the consumer always the rationale used to justify the more honest lingo used by Viaplay in its coming expansion into the U.S. as innovative, disruptive, and ambitious. Pluto features content on multiple channels available on the streamer curated for individual and national tastes. A new twist as the terminology moves out of museums and as Monet and Modigliani give way to Survivor and Spongepants Bob. The grubbiest and most nakedly exploitational view of plucking the European market, now that the U.S. market has nearly reached saturation point for streamers, was HBO Max, which is diluting the HBO standard of quality with a variety of more expansive and popular fare. The streamer, whose stock is still majority owned by the conservative Texas company AT&T, did acknowledge it would be producing three to four shows a year in Spain, the Nordic countries, and Central Europe, clearly what is required by law but also allowed that part of its variety would consist of unscripted, meaning cheaper reality TV series, as well as game shows. Anthony Root, the HBO Max programming director for foreign markets, in describing this expansion and how it would change the company, compared it to moving the oil tanker 45 degrees to the right, that is, casting the behemoth streamer as a bloated carrier of polluting materials stuck in a narrow canal perhaps a two-app description of the whole enterprise. Earlier, an HBO Max executive encountering the charge that Warner Media is an old company explained instead that what it represented was a hundred years of storytelling excellence, a description which neatly allies the sometimes tortured, as when Jack Warner capitulated to the blacklist in the 50s, sometimes trailblazing in its early 30s representations of the hardships of the Depression and its gangster and fallen women films, actual history of the company. The Lionsgate executive, a representative of the studio which has now merged with stars, since all streamers need some back catalog as a way of drawing audience, explained that, with the signing of the Abraham Accords, the formerly strange bedfellows of Israel and Saudi Arabia are now engaged in talks to partner 
to provide content for the new Saudi streaming service. Good news for the region as its two most conservative countries team up to financially swamp other competitors in the region, most notably Egypt. With Syria's ever more hell-bent on concealing and whitewashing the warlike and aggressive tendencies of both countries, who together have rained unending death and destruction on their neighbors. Thierry Breton, the European commissioner charged with promoting the interior market, couched his talk in much more cautious terms, speaking of a rebalancing between American and European film and television, of responsibility of the U.S. companies, of European regulation, and of European Commission funding this year of $2.4 billion to support cross-European film and audiovisual development. The French Minister of Culture, Rosalind Bachelot-Narcan, spoke about a new decree issued by the Macron government with the intention of bringing back our audiences and called attention to the need for French companies not to sell off their back catalog, part of their patrimony, as Netflix recently bought the Francois Truffaut films. Finally, the Portuguese Minister of Culture, representing a left coalition government of communist socialists and the independent left, reminded the audience of producers, writers, and company officials of the need to address the green position in the sector to make it sustainable, and reminded this European audience that we are stronger if acting together. The mood at the three-day conference on remittingly positive with European producers in the audience after the Disney presentation, more elated at the opportunity of selling to Disney than of being overwhelmed by the entity, countered the global economic prognostication, with even the Davos elite last week counseling against toxic positivity as the COVID Delta strain slows down recovery and inflation gallops forward and with the Russian central bank warning that a possible outcome is a return of the global crisis of 2008 and 9 by the end of the year. It is hoped that European series production, both on the continent and in Britain, will not fall prey to the same outcome, with the American corporate streamers pillaging at will and the rest of the continent's producers left clawing for scraps. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express expression in the arts and if you'd like to express yourself too you can write to us at the radio goddess at gmail.com until next time this is prairie miller leaving the station